Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome as our guest this week, Saul Stern, a well-known writer formerly of Manhattan Institute, and we will be talking about an very interesting article that he published in Democracy Journal about his experience at the Manhattan Institute. But first, I want to say welcome to one and all, and we will get to the coronavirus and some other matters. But first, we will begin with the cancel culture again and the um, sort of high-profile departures that we saw this week, one from New York Magazine, Andrew Sullivan, and the other uh, from the New York Times, uh, Barry Weiss. It's gotten a lot of attention. Barry Weiss um, wrote a very public and very long letter of uh, letter of resignation in which she really uh, lit into her former employer, accusing them of being in the basically being run by, she said, Twitter is not on the editorial board of the uh, New York Times, but it might as well be something along those lines that uh, they were basically in thrall to the internet mobs and to the woke mobs. And uh, that's why I'm particularly glad that we have Saul Stern with us this week, because Saul, uh, Saul, you have such an interesting uh, and highly relevant background, because you're someone who began your uh, ideological odyssey very much on the left. Uh, you then migrated more toward the center and the center right. And um, but lately, you've been alienated um, from the right as well. So um, you used to be at the Manhattan Institute. Tell us a little bit about the Manhattan Institute and and your experience there. Okay, sure, and 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 I'm glad to be on. Hi, Mona. Um, well, uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I go all the way back to the mid '60s. I was involved in the free speech movement. I was an editor and writer at Ramparts Magazine. I broke ranks the first time. Uh, from Ramparts when it uh, went too far over to kind of justification of violence uh, and drifted away. Uh, it was violence of the left-wing variety absolute, that they were endorsing. Absolutely. Yeah. Just yeah, to be clear was, for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, they were, you know, the, the two new editors took over after there was a coup and they, <laughs> one of them is still very much, uh, very much present on the Trump issue with David Horowitz and Peter Collier. And they, uh, they basically, uh, they started featuring pieces by uh, Tom Hayden, who of course had met with the uh, Viet Cong, as I did once, uh, and was bringing home, you know, the, 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 new, the new line for the new left was bring the war back home. And it was actually war. I mean, the weathermen went and made war on the streets and there was other incidents. Uh, so I, I, I moved away from that. I was alienated from the left also on the Israel question. I spent a lot of time in Israel. Uh, in the 80s, uh, I was writing a lot, 70s and 80s, writing a lot for the New York Times Magazine, The Village Voice, 
and drifted towards, as you put it very well, towards the center or center-right. I got involved. I started writing about education. And I, I was uh, very fortunate in being scooped up by the Manhattan Institute, a very nice uh, uh, stipend as a fellow because of some of the stuff I was writing about uh, the efficacy of uh, Catholic schools and the need for uh, school choice. And my first 12 years or 13 years at City Journal and Manhattan Institute were journalistic heaven. I mean, I, I was reborn I, and, and I had a regular paycheck, which was very nice. Um, when I started questioning whether uh, vouchers actually delivered all the goods on based on new evidence, I was basically censored the first time, uh, and it was because of the donors. I could have, I might have, you know, this is, you know, I, I'm not a babe in the woods. I'm not an innocent about these things. Magazines do these things. Newspapers do these things. But what it really uh, uh, drove me over the edge was that uh, by uh, 2016, the magazine and the Manhattan Institute had kind of withdrawn stood on the sidelines, refused to comment, as uh, Trump basically took over the Republican Party. And then it got even worse once he became president. And uh, what, so th this wasn't just another little incident on a minor issue. This was about the future of the country. And I believed and still believe that Trump was a catastrophe for, for a republic. And uh, what was made it all worse is I, not only wasn't I allowed to write about Trump, but it was pretty clear that the censorship was coming from uh, the two main uh, uh, people, two billionaires on the, our board of trustees. One was Paul Singer, who actually was anti-Trump in the you know early on in the Republican primaries, and Rebecca Mercer, who moved to Trump after. Uh, uh, somewhere in the middle of a campaign. Uh, and, let me uh, let yeah. me interrupt you right there because I'm going to quote um, something from your piece. Um, this is you quoting Heather McDonald, who's a uh, very uh, gifted writer for City Journal and uh, very influential on the right, uh, especially on matters of policing. Um, you quote her in 2016. This is what she wrote about Trump then. Quote. While the Republican establishment deserves its comeuppance, the fallout to the country at large of a Trump presidency would likely be as dire as his critics predict. Trump is the embodiment of what the Italians call maladucato, poorly raised, ill-bred. Indeed, judging by the results, his upbringing seems to have involved no check whatsoever on the crudest male instincts for aggression and humiliation, unquote. And you wrote that you were expecting more like that. You were expecting the magazine City Journal, which is published by Manhattan Institute, to um, to continue along those lines. But instead, they basically put the kibosh on any anti-Trump commentary, right? Well, during, during the primaries, they put the kibosh on any con uh, commentary at all. They decided to just bow out. Now, I, I haven't, I, I'm not sure why that happened. Was it the editor? Was it conversations with uh, uh, some of the donors. That's a possible theory because at, at the time that Heather wrote that article, which was a brilliant article, and uh, she turned out to be quite prophetic, didn't she? Mm. Uh, at that time, uh, there was a split on the board between the two major funders. And Paul Singer went, was all in for Marco Rubio, 
and uh, 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 Rebecca Mercer was on, you know, moving away from Ted Cruz towards Trump. I'm not sure that was the reason, or uh, my editor, Brian Anderson, had other reasons, but he decided that we were, weren't just going to get into this. There was some rationalization by people. Well, City Journal tends to focus on policy issues. It isn't that political. Uh, but in, in any event, I, I, I let that go. I did write about Trump for other publications during that period. Uh, what, 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 you know, and I, and I assume this was, this was <laughs> what was fascinating. I, like everyone else, I assume, okay, what's the big deal, Trump? You know, the, there's no chance that Trump will win. November will, will come. Hillary will be president. And uh, we'll go back to criticizing presidents the way we always do. Mm. But it didn't work out that way. And then I, it became obvious when the magazine, in the, just as Trump was inaugurated, the magazine ran uh, a very long piece by Victor Davis Hanson explaining the Trump victory. Yeah. And Hanson is maybe the leading intellectual uh, Trumpist in the country today, quite eloquent, uh, very learned. And mm. after that article, that pretty much set the tone. Nobody was allowed to question it. I wasn't allowed to write about Trump as president as well. Yeah. Now, Linda, let me um, bring you into this conversation. Um, what Saul experienced at the Manhattan Institute has been replicated many times at various other conservative institutions. Uh, so which side would you say is the more illiberal in, in our time, the, uh, the woke left uh, or the right? Well, I think both of them uh, are at fault. And by, and by the way, uh, for your listeners who don't know, I spent seven years at the Manhattan Institute in my first book, Out of the Barrio, uh, Toward a New Politics of Hispanic Assimilation. Uh, was written while I was a fellow uh, there in 1991. Um, you know, I, it isn't terribly surprising that institutions that depend on the funds of very wealthy people are going to be influenced uh, by those um, by those donations so it's it's not terribly surprising uh, that a, a, an institution like the Manhattan Institute um, you know exists and and has a particular point of view I think it's unfortunate. Uh, that voices like Saul Stern uh, are not welcome there. By the way, my book uh, about Hispanics uh, would not be able to be uh, a publication that would come out of a, an organization like the Manhattan Institute today because they have flip-flopped entirely on the issue of immigration and assimilation. And Heather McDonald's view um, is now prevalent uh, and, and so there's a lot of illiberalism, I think, on both sides. I mean, obviously, the Barry Weiss and, and uh, resignation, um, Andrew Sullivan's uh, being uh, pushed out uh, at the New Yorker uh, is... New York. No, I'm New York. sorry, New York. Sorry, I always get the... I always mess that up. New York Magazine um, has also, uh, you know, been similar, but... Why are we surprised at this? I, I, I guess, um, you know, when I look for a home, I look for a place that, you know, that is going to be reflecting uh, sentiments that, you know, uh, mirror my own and where I'm going to be able to be comfortable writing what I want to write. And so I end up at a place like Miss Gannon. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm less shocked than, than others. So, Damon, uh, 
donors have influence over small publications that uh, don't rely on subscription for their for their financial health. Um, and so Linda says that's just the way it is. And um, but you know. Um, organizations that do rely on a subscriber base, whether it's talk radio or uh, cable television or larger media outlets, um, they too are enthralled to their audience, right? I mean, of, of course. I mean, I yeah. see. I see all of this as it, it kind of has two dimensions. On one dimension, yes, it is the case that uh, it's it's not surprising or bad that. Uh, private institutions, uh, you know, uh, have their uh, their kind of range of opinions that they cultivate in journalism, whether it's reporting or opinion, and they're perfectly free to do that. But the other dimension is time and how things change over time. And the fact is that City Journal has moved from one position to a different position, uh, much as, say, National Review, which spent uh, the early primaries in 2016 lashing out at Trump pretty uh, aggressively, including sponsoring this very at the time, notorious uh, symposium titled Against Trump, in which they brought in a, a couple dozen very prominent people on the right to attack him. Including and, yours truly. Yes, I, I figured there were some in the room. <laughs> um, and, and then on the other side, you have places like the New Republic, where Andrew Sullivan used to be an editor long ago, where I used to write regularly. I had a blog. I was a contributing editor of the magazine and, uh, and left and it lurched to the left. And then you have places like the New York Times, where, you know, a lot of the discussion of the Barry Weiss incident, I think sort of, this isn't true of your piece, but uh, which was very, very good, by the way. Uh, oh, thank listeners, you. Um, uh, you might want to take a look if you want to get up to speed on some of the issues involved there. But a lot of people commenting on the Weiss situation seemed to, to be under the impression that she was primarily a columnist, but she was not. She was an editor right. who occasionally wrote a column or a feature that, of course, had to be vetted and edited and approved like anything else that runs in the paper. Uh, but she was mainly brought in by James Bennett, who was pushed out a couple of months ago, uh, to be an editor to bring in a certain kind of commentary to the op-ed pages, a certain kind of um, view of not necessarily, say, pro-Trump, but pro uh, outside the normal lines of, of New York Times reader thinking about what's going on in the country since Trump won. And she did that, I think, very well. So what her, uh, her being essentially pushed out and then resigning after a lot of abuse on the staff was effectively a large part of the staff saying, we don't want to be the kind of paper that publishes that kind of stuff. So get out. We don't, we're going to make your life miserable just as we would in a high school cafeteria to a kid we don't like. We're not going to actually be able to physically get you to get kicked out, but we'll make your life so miserable that you'll just leave and go to another school. That's what they did to her. And so that's the other dimension that we're living through time in a period where lines are shifting and they are shifting in anti-liberal directions on both sides. Yeah, Bill, um, something 
that both Damon and Linda said, uh, and Saul too, I'd like to follow up on because, um, of course, it's true that publications have a point of view in many instances, certainly journals of opinion, that's their function, and they can change over time. But what impairs their credibility and their integrity is when the change is so rapid and so complete that it gives the reader whiplash. And arguably, um, you know, the, the conservatives, and I'm more critical of the right than I am of the left because I'm basically of the right, um, but, um, but, but conservative publications and institutions um, kind of reminded me in the Trump era of the communists in the 1940s who, you know, all throughout Europe and the United States, you know, the communists were, were for getting along with Hitler as soon as the Hitler-Stalin pact was signed. And they, you know, were, were uh, you know, 100%. And then when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, oh, they were, you know, they turned on a dime and it was all about, you know, uh, opening a second front. And similarly, um, you know, conservatives have turned on dimes on lots of very crucial issues going to the heart of what people used to think was what it meant to be conservative. Uh, Matters of character, matters of free trade, matters of honesty, matters of good government. Do you see a similar, I mean, so, so how do you evaluate that? Are you more critical of the, of the left than you are of the right when it comes to these matters? Well, I'm, I'm critical of any publication, any movement, any individual uh, that puts power over principle. It's just as simple as that. And uh, one of the things that troubles me about the, the narrative in Saul's excellent article is that you see people uh, particularly Peter Singer, you know, whom I always regarded as a man of principle, even though I didn't agree with most of his principles, accommodating himself to power. And you know, after having contributed pretty heavily to the defeat of Donald Trump during the primary, uh, decided that he wanted to ingratiate himself with the new power. Uh, and turned on a dime uh, to do that. Uh, And one way in which, uh, I'll use an old-fashioned word, evil triumphs, is when people who know better, rather than resisting the evil, accommodate themselves to it. And this is a story that we have seen repeated over and over again in the past century of ideological politics. Uh, I come from a red diaper family. My grandfather was Morton Sobel's lawyer in the Rosenberg trials. Uh, I I grew up uh, with many Stalinists coming to the house on a regular basis, although my parents weren't quite that far along, but I saw it from the inside. Uh, and finally, my father couldn't take it anymore. He was a very good biologist. And uh, he quarreled with the Stalinists about Lysenkoist biology, oh, yeah. which, is, which is a classic case of scientific principle accommodating itself to political power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the phenomenon 
takes on different forms depending on where on the ideological spectrum it's located and the era in in which this accommodation takes place. But in principle, it's always the same. People discard what they believe in the name of proximity to power, in some cases, material gain, uh, in other cases, just the thrill of being on the inside rather than the outside looking in, you name it. There are a million different motives for accommodation, but the consequences are always the same. The forces of evil are strengthened. The forces of liberty are weakened. Hmm. You, uh, uh, Sal, I, I, I want to come back to you. Um, the, uh, the way it happens, though, on the left strikes me as um, often so unbelievably petty. Things that will get people in trouble on the left are things like what happened to Barry Weiss, where she tweeted praise of an American skater who had done something at the Olympics, and she retweeted a, an NBC Sports uh, tweet congratulating her, and she tagged onto it, immigrants, they get the job done, which was a slightly mangled, but nevertheless, a quote from the very popular musical Hamilton. And for this, she was dragged mercilessly. Oh, it turned out that this uh, skater was not an immigrant herself. She was the daughter of two immigrants, and she was accused of othering uh, this person. And you know, what? how much bad faith do you have to bring to an argument not to be able to see what is so obvious, which is she wasn't attempting to insult anyone. She was celebrating this skater. Don't you agree that there's there's an element of just sheer... Um, bullying that goes on here where it's just an opportunity to parade as a victim? Uh, yes, I do. But I mm -hmm. want to come back to the question, uh, to the question of, uh, you know, which is worse, right wing or okay. left wing? Uh, I will say that uh, to me, although there is more left wing um, uh, uh, cancel culture because mm -hmm. the left uh, has more uh, influence uh, in our cultural institutions, in the media and universities, uh, than, than the right, which now has control of the government. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the big, the, to me, the, the, the big difference is that for the, is the hypocrisy on the right. Because, you know, people on the left, these, uh, uh, the people who are attacking Barry Weiss, the the woke, the new woke generation, they're not embarrassed about it. They're, they're pretty much in your face. They don't pretend not to be. Uh, but the hypocrisy on the right is striking. Uh, and it was, to me, it's striking now and continues in, in City Journal. I mean, they still carry, in the midst of all this, during a period in the last few months, when they wrote, uh, carried maybe 80 articles about uh, the impact of the coronavirus on American society and the implications. There was not one single article speaking about uh, Trump's role. The commander in chief uh, of of the uh, of the war against coronavirus wasn't mentioned in City Journal. And then there have the chutzpah to run a piece by Judy Miller uh, attacking a, a, a left wing uh, cancel culture. Right. Uh, that's so. It, it's it's that it's that hypocrisy. One one other point, you know, back to what Linda said. She's right. One shouldn't be that 
surprised that an institution like uh, Manhattan Institute, funded by uh, 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 very wealthy people, will bend to some extent uh, to to uh, to their political interests and their ideological interests. What what was surprising? I was surprised because the tradition at Manhattan Institute and and uh, was that City Journal was a separate independent. It was published by Manhattan Institute, but the idea was that the editor had editor of that magazine had autonomy, it, very much similar to the relationship in from the 60s, 50s and 60s of Commentary Magazine, a great intellectual magazine, and its sponsor, the American Jewish Committee. Commentary uh, moved away from the, the, the politics uh, favored by the American Jewish Committee. But the tradition was, well, we can fire the editor if we want to, but we're not going to interfere. It's an independent matter. And that was true at Manhattan Institute and City Journal for the first 12 or 13 years I, I was there. And I give Myron Magnet, my editor, credit for that. He fought very. Uh, he, he, he he fought very hard to maintain the magazine's independence, but eventually they did get rid of him, and the whole model changed so that the donors began to have influence, not just on what is turned out by Manhattan Institute, but in the actual content of City Journal, which, to my in my view, compromised uh, this magazine's intellectual integrity. Well, let us turn now to a discussion of the pandemic and America's catastrophic mismanagement of it, um, just to give uh, some statistics on what's happening here versus the rest of the world. So the average daily rate of new infections is about 60,000 in the United States. We have a population of about 325 million people. If you look at the European Union plus Britain, that's about 500 million people, um, they have roughly 2,500 cases a day. So it's uh, 60,000 versus 2,500. Now, the president at his Rose Garden ceremony said that it was just the testing. So Bill Galston, uh, Britain has performed 178 tests for every 1,000 residents. We have conducted 129 tests for every 1,000 residents. So it's not the testing, is it, Bill? (laughs) (laughs) Is that supposed to be a hardball question? Yeah, hardball (laughs) question. (laughs) No, it's it's not just the testing, yo. We have reached the nadir of national humiliation. Yeah. You know, people, people who used to hate us now just pity us. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, this is, this is a fiasco of historic proportions for governance in the United States. They're going to be studying this one in business school and public policy school case, case books for decades to come. Uh, It's hard to think of how we could have done worse, frankly. Uh, And and I say that despite the fact that governors and local officials around the country have done their best uh, against very considerable odds. Uh, But I know it's tired and trite, but it's true. We're learning why even in a country 
with a long and worthy tradition of federalism. There is a national government which is charged with doing the things that only a national government can do. This administration not only failed to do them, but declined explicitly to do them. And here we are. Uh, And uh, uh, the president's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, just a couple of days ago, published a piece in which he said, quite frankly and accurately, that the testing component of our national response has been disgraceful. He's right. Uh, But the only way to avoid that outcome would have been uh, for the Trump administration to take responsibility, not for conducting the testing, but for ensuring that adequate materials were available to states and localities at fair prices. They decided not to do that. And the outcome has been shortages, states frantically competing against each other and foreign governments for scarce materials, waits as long as 13 hours in 100 degrees heat in Phoenix, Arizona, just yesterday and the day before to get tested. This is pathetic. Uh, There are countries with a tenth of our per capita income that are doing better than we are. I don't know where to start. Uh, I don't know how to end. I'm, I'm embarrassed for our country. What more can I say? Damon, um, I was talking to someone recently who has dual Canadian U.S. citizenship and uh, was reflecting on the fact that um, the Make America Great program has now reached the point where an American passport cannot get you into Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 it, I agree with everything uh, Bill said, and and much more. I'm actually writing a very gloomy column today about much of this. Um, I mean, just uh, just today. I mean, earlier this week, you started to hear that uh, the CDC was going to start to take control of, of kind of virus related data. Uh, and put it in a database that wouldn't be accessible to the public. And and as yeah. of this morning, uh, the CDC.gov hospital capacity dashboard has gone dark. Unbelievable. The, the CDC director has said that the CDC still has access to the data, but will no longer be making the public, uh, giving the public <laughs> access to it. This is... This is really where we've ended up with Donald Trump actually believes, and he told us this in The Art of the Deal, that if you lie, you effectively create an alternative reality in which you can do anything you want. That was his business model, and he is now doing it in the United States. He actually thinks that if we don't test if we don't publish facts about what is happening, that he can somehow make this all just disappear and pretend everything's great. That is uh, that is beyond anyone's worst nightmare of whatever you want to call it, postmodernism, relativism, uh, Karl Rove's little quip, uh, supposedly his quip in that uh, story in 2004 about the reality-based community and sneering at it. 
Um, it, it's, it's really beyond imagining that we have ended up here, the most powerful country on the planet, at least until now. Uh, uh, the, as Bill was saying, one of the, you know, such a rich country, which with so much state capacity until about two weeks ago, it seems, uh, we're just sort of like sitting here going down and it, it is, it is extremely distressing. Um, especially in these states like Texas and Arizona and Florida. Um, it's, I, I, what is there to say beyond just enumerating this endless list of failings and embarrassments? And it's people's lives that are at stake ultimately, and they're going to die. And here we are. Oh, but, but Saul, it's not true that, that President Trump hasn't managed this. He's managing it. He had his trade advisor put out an op-ed attacking his medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. So, um, so he's been busy. Yeah. And this is an example to come back to the point about cancel culture, right-wing and left-wing cancel culture. Right-wing cancel culture is not only more hypocritical, but this is an example of cancel culture in power, where you cancel mm -hmm. science, cancel the CDC, cancel Fauci. This comes closer, though, you know, I hate to make historical analogies and everyone, you know, people pro-Trump say, oh, you can't possibly compare Trump to Stalin. Of course I'm not. And I'm not comparing the United States to the Soviet Union. But this is the kind of stuff that not only was going on with the cancel, cancel science, the, the Lysenko business and stuff like that, but it's being supported. It's being supported by intellectuals yes. in the United States. I, I don't know how many, particularly younger writers who are so offended by the left, who are also saying, who are arguing that, uh, and they're taking a cue from my old friend Heather McDonald on this, that there's something tyrannical about asking you to wear a mask. <laughs> Yeah. Showing a little concern for your fellow citizens, trying to help uh, your grand, make sure your grandparents don't get sick, and I'm right. one of those grandparents, is right. is an act of tyranny. This is this is intellectual degeneration of the worst kind, and it's only happening on the right. Yes, of course, the left wing, you know, left wing cancel culture is very annoying. It's absurd but it is not as deadly as this kind of right-wing cancel culture. Could Linda? I just, could I, could yep. I get, make you even more depressed? Because I <laughs> agree with every single thing that all three of our other uh, guests have, have uh, suggested, but it is worse than that. It is worse <laughs> than Donald Trump. The fact is, and some of you who came out of the left, as I did, will recognize the phrase uh, bourgeois individualism, um, an old left critique. But the fact is, there is this kind of weird individualism in the United States where people, and clearly a large portion of people, it, you know, maybe it's only the one third that supports Donald Trump, but that's huge, refusing to wear a mask, refusing to do what needs to be done to lock this pandemic down. If, if it was just Donald Trump, um, it would be bad enough. But the fact is he has followers and those followers were attracted to him in the first place because of this kind of Yahoo mentality. 
and uh, this idea that they're going to show, you know, that liberty means being able to cough in somebody else's face or, or breathe their germs all over them. And this is what is most worrisome to me, is that there has been, you know, that there is this culture in America that is antithetical, number one, to uh, among a large portion of the population, to believing in science, to believing in experts, and number two, to believing that the community matters as well as the individual, and that individuals' freedom is not absolute, and that what I do, if it affects you, whether it be smoking or, you know, not wearing a helmet and, and getting in an accident uh, if you're on a motorcycle and having taxpayers have to foot part of that bill, all of these things, there are kinds of restrictions on human behavior that we need to voluntarily engage in uh, if we're going to be able to survive something like this pandemic. Um, yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, the the old libertarian line was always um, your freedom to swing your arm ends with the tip of my nose. Um, and but but let me just add to what you were saying, Linda, with this um, speculation, which is that yes, you're right. This um, this theme, you know, don't tread on me. I know my rights is part of the American tradition, but it was always leavened by people's local community uh, and religious uh, life. And religion has many faults, but one of its virtues is that in addition to uh, your rights, you're, you're taught your duties and your obligations to, your, to others and to your community and to God. And as we have become less and less of a church-going, synagogue-going, mosque-going um, people, uh, we have kept the uh, sort of truculent uh, assertion of our rights, but we've neglected all of the duties. And people no longer feel attached to a larger community uh, that, that uh, can call upon self-sacrifice. What did you want to add to that, Saul? Oh, I, I, uh, I, I was just going to say that uh, there's a little uh, additional complication to that because there is a wing, uh, a part of the right wing, maybe best sim symbolized by Sorab Amari, a brilliant young uh, uh, writer, uh, uh, an immigrant uh, from, from Iran, uh, who has now become a, a devout Catholic and, and, uh, and uh, uh, attacked David French uh, last year, precisely because he was too liberal or too mm -hmm. much involved, uh, too much of a supporter of the doctrine of individualism, and and Sorab uh, uh, believes that the state, a righteous state, should get involved and and uh, and uh, fight fight get involved in, in in the culture wars, and that's that's one of the ironies of all this. And by the way, talk about hypocrisy. Uh, someone who believes in that kind of cancel culture was the first to promote the uh, the uh, uh, the Barry Weiss uh, uh, resignation letter, and you know ran oh. it as, uh, as, as, on the front page of the of the New York Post. <laughs> right. Yes. Good point. Um, all right. Um, let us spend a little bit of time on um, Joe Biden's uh, various proposals. He's been rolling out some ideas. 
for what he would do as president. Um, some of them sound slightly familiar and not in a good way, Bill Galston, like he emphasized the importance of buy American uh, and uh, that when the government spends money, we should spend it here and on and, and raise it here and spend, you know, and so on. It, it sounded a little Trumpy. What do you say to that? Well, that part of it is a little Trumpy. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can't say that I'm entirely opposed to the idea uh, that if you have countries like China massively intervening in in their markets in order to secure a national advantage, that at some point a country like the United States, if it can't fight that, may have to mirror it. it. Uh, I hope not to too great a degree, but uh, you know, I don't I don't think that's a hanging offense, hmm. frankly. Uh, no, you're wrong about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was kidding. I was. I said you're wrong about that. It's a hanging offense. Yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I think what, I think what Biden has been trying to do is to find an a, an approach to governing over the next four years that includes steps that are adequate to the magnitude of the problems that we face. Uh, he is proceeding much more ambitiously uh, than I'm sure he would have done a year ago or even six months ago, but circumstances are different. And there's reason to believe that not only do we have longstanding structural problems that we need to attend to, but also that if, if the recovery of the economy for all sorts of reasons, both domestic and, and global, uh, remains slow, halting, and incomplete, there's a role for the federal government that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Uh, we can argue, and I'm sure we will, about whether spending $2 trillion over the next four years on, on infrastructure, much of it oriented towards uh, environmental change, is the right amount or the right direction. Frankly, I don't I can't find any reason to oppose the move to upgrade the, the heating and cooling efficiency of our buildings, which is one of his major planks. Uh, I think that his proposal to develop an emissions neutral power sector by 2035 uh, is feasible uh, and need not come with massive disruption. Uh, He's talking about investing in carbon capture technology, new storage techniques for natural gas. He's not talking about canceling fossil fuel. You know, he's talking about managing them uh, more sensibly. Uh, and he has resisted enormous pressure from the left to embrace a fracking ban, which he explicitly rejected. Uh, there will be no new fracking on federal line, lands, but that's a very modest step compared to what some of the Green New Deal people wanted him to say. So, True, and would have, let me just interrupt really quickly to say, it had they embraced that as the official Democratic Party position, it could have hurt them in Ohio and Pennsylvania, not to be too crassly political about it, but there are a lot of fracking jobs in those states. Well, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but 
you know, but I think uh, I think that the Biden campaign so far has been pretty good at discerning where the public's red lines are and making sure not to cross those lines. Uh, Biden's response to the defund the police movement is a pretty good example of that. So will conservatives like the Biden program? Certainly not. Uh, is it is it unreasonable and politically unacceptable? I don't think so. But then again, I'm 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 a Democrat on this show. Let <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me turn to another Democrat on this show, um, uh, Damon. Actually, Damon, I don't know if you belong to the Democratic Party. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Let me ask you I, this. I do. Okay, you do. Okay, there we go. Um, so, um, is it wrong to say? Um, that um, the actually that the better way to deal with China, if um, well, let, let me back up. Uh, I posit that Donald Trump has had a permanent effect on our thinking about trade, even if Donald Trump is a complete disaster and is perceived to be one. Um, if the Democratic Party is so afraid now. Of, of just embracing the, the obvious solution to China, which is not to slap them with tariffs unilaterally, but to cooperate with our allies, as we did with the TPP treaty, and which was trashed, and Hillary Clinton promised to trash it too, uh, but, uh, but Biden uh, was for it in the beginning. And uh, doesn't that suggest that that common sense way of dealing with China, get all of our allies together to uh, write the rules of the road so that China will have to deal not just with the U.S., but with all of our allies um, and will therefore be in a much diminished power position. OK, Biden's not willing to do that. So Trump has achieved a victory there, hasn't he? Uh, I think he has. And I think that it but I, I guess I would say that I think it's a little bit uh, even beyond him. And it's more of a longer term problem in the way that the United States has been acting in the world over the last two decades. I wrote a, a column about this as well this week that um it's one thing to say kind of plan A is that we would come in and kind of revive the, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal that Trump scuttled and we would make these other kind of reversals and go back to status quo pre-Trump. Uh, but the, the, I think the reality is that um, we've sort of blown it with these <laughs> allies after a first uh, having the 1990s was kind of like the heyday of free trade as an ideal and something that we were actively working toward, as well as kind of trying to expand as much as possible a kind of multilateral uh, foreign policy regime that was kind of maximally in intent on expanding what's now called the, the liberal international order. Uh, Bush came in after 9-11, at least, and with the Iraq war, really kind of raised a lot of concerns among our allies about exactly how much we were willing to do all on our own without working in concert with the broadest possible coalition. We sort of defied worldwide opinion among our allies, at least a lot of them, not the UK and, and a few others, and especially in the Anglosphere, but a lot of our continental European allies and in Asia, there was a lot of, of, of uncertainty about this. 
then Obama comes in and it's kind of like reset time. He sort of says, well, that was just a, you know, a momentary uh, glitch. Now we're back. We're on track. Free trade. We're going to do all these things. He does things that some conservatives didn't like at all, like uh, the Iran nuclear deal, but uh, and then also uh, the Paris Accords about climate change. And the world says, okay, the U.S. is back. We may not agree with all of this, but we're, we're with you. Then Trump comes in and we have, we have this four-year interregnum where every single thing Obama did is scuttled. Mm -hmm. All the negotiations on the trade deal for years and years are thrown in the trash. Can Biden really come in and just say, okay, the solution is we're back? Or will <laughs> the world say, yeah, but what about four years from now when you yeah. elect Tucker Carlson, God forbid? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In that context, I think we might have no choice but to take a more kind of nationalistic, unilateral approach to these things simply because no one will trust us enough to work with us again, at least in the way that we used to hope. And that's really sad for our world leadership. Um, it's such as it is. I think it's gone, actually. Um, Linda, um, if you look at right-wing websites um, and, uh, and publications, you will see that Joe Biden is a raving socialist who is going to spell the end of democracy and capitalism as we have known it. Um, I would commend to you this detail from his plan that he would raise the corporate income tax rate from where it is now at 21% to 28%. <gasps> it was, by the way, it was 35% before the law was changed in 2017. So he's not even proposing to put it back up to where it was under Obama. So well, wasn't it 28% under Reagan? Uh, that might be. Yeah, uh, it sounds it, right. That, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, I'm frankly, um, as you might expect, I'm not anxious to raise corporate income taxes. Um, I'm not sure that that is, you know, going to produce a lot of money because, you know, as somebody who sits on a corporate board, we have very good ways of figuring out, you know, how not to pay them. So, uh. In, in corporate America. And yeah, no, so, I agree with you. Uh, By the way, so, corporations don't pay taxes. They just Right, I know. Along. They pass it yeah. along to, right, right. absolutely. Right. But, uh, but the fact is, uh, you know, I think this attempt to portray Biden, not just as a socialist, but as an anarchist. I mean, I, I think some of the worst television ads I have seen in my entire history in politics have been produced by the Trump uh, campaign. The one on uh, policing is so over the top and so ridiculous for those who haven't seen it. It, you know, shows somebody calling a police department and push one for rape, push two for murder, uh, you know, and by the way, you know, we'll try to get back to you, but it's at least five days uh, before we can uh -huh. answer your call. I mean, they're, they're ineffective. And I actually believe that Trump himself is basically dictating uh, what goes into these commercials because nobody who you know is in Mad Madison Avenue would ever come up with these ridiculous um, advertisements. So I, I mean, the whole <laughs> campaign is, is so over the top and it's it's backfiring. It. I mean, people are looking at it and saying this is crazy, uh, and they do know 
uh, Joe Biden. And he's not some raving uh, left-wing lunatic. Will I be happy after Joe Biden is elected that the policies he's going to be put in, putting in place? Absolutely not. I'm going to disagree with lots of them, including raising corporate income taxes. But do I think that he is going to do the kind of harm that uh, Donald Trump has done? Again, absolutely not. And and the hope is that he's going to be able to reverse the mismanagement, the incompetence, the failures of this administration to handle real problems. Uh, to quote one of the Republican voters against Trump, um, these uh, little few-minute ads that uh, are running on social media, uh, one of them features a, a man who did vote for Trump in 2016 and is completely disgusted now and says that if the Democrats put up a can of tomato soup against Trump, he would vote for the can of tomato soup. So, Correct. <laughs> Uh, what my favorite, my favorite sign in my neighborhood, by the way, is any functioning adult. Yes. Uh, 2020. Yes. yes, yes. I've seen that one too. Even, yeah, but I guess Kanye isn't functional. So that's, (laughs) he's not an adult either, at least. If the Democrats put up a Warhol, uh, soup, Will the Republican voter vote three times? <laughs> By the way, I, uh, I, I just uh, just one little demur here. I, I, I saw that ad, Linda, and you're right about trying to. It's absurd to try to pin uh, quote anarchy on 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 Biden, which which that ad does with with the picture of Biden. But uh, I wouldn't underestimate uh, the fact that. There's going to be a counter reaction to the excesses of the uh, protests and uh, and Black Lives Matter in 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 the refusal to discuss. You don't see much discussion of the fact that it has that these things, the uh, attempts to defund the police, has led directly to an increase in crime and particularly in 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 uh, in black areas. And that that's that's going to I think that's one of his last shot. That one of Trump's last shots. And if he and, did and, it in a sophisticated way, Saul, I would agree with you. Yeah. Uh, but he's not, and and that's the problem: is that he, even when he has an issue that could work to his benefit, but, he screws but, it up. But as potential voters, are not very sophisticated. I mean, people on you know who who are uh, who are you know who are undecided may not be very sophisticated. And they'll see what they'll see around them, unless it changes. They'll see they'll see what looks like anarchy, uh, and and the police losing control, and that is a real danger. And it's even I, even more important for Biden to speak out very forcefully about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that that is a potential uh, vulnerability uh, for the Democrats. I, I agree with Saul about that. It doesn't seem that the violence has has gotten to that point, uh, but if it does, it would it would present uh, a genuine challenge for the Democrats. Um, Bill, Bill, did you want to follow up on the trade issue, or um... I did, but I think we're reaching, we're getting close okay. to the end. And- okay. You know, Save it for next time. I, I think we will want to return to it because it is a very complicated issue that we have not even begun to scratch. In this that's that's absolutely fine. Yeah, we will do that for sure. 
Okay. Um, we come to our final segment now, something that we want to applaud or condemn. Um, Linda, let's start with you. Well, I was going to point to an article. It isn't even applauding or condemning, but I thought it was an interesting piece in the New York Times. Why does America have old leaders? This is something that I think we've talked about on the show. And as a group, you're not included in this, Mona, or you, Damon, but a bunch <laughs> of- younger the, than I am. <laughs> but the rest of us are septuagenarians. And you know, why is it we have such old people who are running for office? In the article by uh, Ian Prasad Philbrick, suggests that there are a couple of reasons. One is just the mere fact of the baby boom, which hit the United States in a way that it did not uh, other countries. We just have this huge cohort of people, Um, but also the way in which we elect leaders. It's a direct uh, election uh, has, has been a factor. And um, I think it's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not happy about it. I don't like the fact that uh, people who are in their seventies, are in the only choices that we're going to have uh, in November. I think that's not necessarily good for the country. And so, you know, trying to figure out how we produce new young leaders uh, in both parties that are responsible, uh, I think is important. Okay. Uh, Bill Galston. Well, I'd first note that Democrats had the opportunity to nominate someone exactly half Joe Biden's age, <laughs> and they decided against it. And, uh, you know, he, Biden doesn't seem so old to me. You know, that's <laughs> uh, but, you know but what I what I want to note, neither to applaud nor deplore, uh, is that people have been wondering for a while whether Trump's travails would spread to the rest of the Republican Party. Uh, and I think I think the evidence is now mounting that it's the latter, uh, that it will spread. Uh, just today, Gallup came out with a new survey on party affiliation, and the results are really quite stunning. Uh, at the beginning of this year, Republicans actually had a two-point edge in party affiliation nationwide. Today, the Democrats have an 11 point lead mm. affiliation. You know, Democrats and leaners are now 59%, 50%. Uh, Republicans and Republican sympathizers are now down to 39%. And that's a fall of 5%, five percentage points for Republicans in the past two months. Something is happening out there, folks. Is it still the case, Bill, that uh, independents are the plurality? No. No, 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 it, it, uh, from a political science standpoint, uh, independents like Caesar's Gaul are divided into three parts. Uh, there are, there are self-proclaimed independents who are the functional equivalent of Republicans. There are self-declared independents who are the functional equivalent of Democrats. And the final third of independents, you know, who are now somewhere between 35 and 40%, of the population are the true independents who don't lean in either direction, who don't behave like members of either political party. They tend not to vote very much either. So mm-hmm. they're not all that important. Uh, so, so the idea that independents now dominate the political scene is a myth. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Saul. Yeah. I, I want to call attention to Poland. We have forgotten about Poland. We are so preoccupied. 
in the media about Trump, uh, it, it's unbelievable how little news there is about the outside world. Well, we we liberals, uh, you know, we Democrats had you had just had a huge setback in Poland, uh, uh, where uh, uh, Andrzej Duda uh, w- won the race for president, basically running uh, uh, against LGBT and uh, foreign influence. Uh, and he, you know, uh, he, he, they're gonna, the Law and Justice Party is going to consolidate power in the most important country in Central Europe and uh, point the way to what uh, cancel even more for the Trump administration, if, it's, if Trump is reelected, of what cancel culture in power looks like. But I also want to applaud Ann Applebaum, who's whose book I'm, I'm reading and I was coming out next week, I urge all of you, one of the few reporters we have who, you know, persists, you know, partly because she lives in Poland, is reporting on developments in, in Central Europe, and they're very important. Uh, Anne, of course, has been a guest on this podcast, uh, and uh, I'm sure will be again, um, and uh, has written really fantastic uh, award-winning books about uh, the Gulag Archipelago and uh, and other other light subjects. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Damon. Uh, at the risk of sounding a little bit like a suck-up, I want to draw attention to uh, an essay by one William A. Galston uh, <laughs> in the new issue, uh, the July issue of Journal of Democracy, titled The Enduring Vulnerability of Liberal Democracy, which is uh, a really excellent uh, essay that tries to defend liberalism against its critics, but by way of doing it exactly the way I think it should be done, which is by acknowledging the liberalism's weaknesses, by acknowledging the fact that a lot of its critics uh, are sort of more with the grain of human nature than liberals often end up being, in the sense that they try to fulfill aspects of the human soul that uh, are perhaps uh, not directly fulfilled by liberal politics and liberal societies. So it's a, it's a, a very careful and nuanced treatment of an extremely important Excellent. Well, actually, you um, uh, have identified a theme for our final segment because I, in turn, want to praise an excellent piece by one Damon Linker, which appeared in The Week this week. Uh, The title is The Flight 93 Election Ended in Disaster. And uh, if people recall, there was a famous essay written by a fellow named Michael Anton in 2016, it got tremendous attention on the right. Rush Limbaugh read pretty much the entire thing on his radio program, and it argued that the nation was like the uh, passengers on the doomed Flight 93, and they had only uh, two choices to die, which would be let Hillary Clinton win, or to storm the cockpit and possibly save everyone and uh, that was the option that they, that's how they styled it, um, voting for Trump. And, uh, and as Damon says, he, they, they, they turned themselves into heroes for voting for this con man. In any event, um, it's a brilliant piece. It also discusses the fact that this, uh, this choice has led to exactly the kinds of disasters that the people who believed in that article thought they were averting. And so I highly recommend it. 
All right. Um, thank you, one and all. Thanks to Saul. And uh, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>